Hi, this is Paul Berry, author, blues harmonica player, and blues promoter, and you're listening to Talking Blues. So, what came first, your love of harmonica or your love of blues? I think my, my love of, of uh, blues came first, and then one, once I heard harmonica, just something that I really fell in love with from the very first time I heard it and uh, it just got, kind of got me hooked into the blues music and uh, just just love the sound of the harmonica. How, how old were you when you got into the blues? I was 18 years old. Okay, so not really young. How, right. How did that happen? Um, just, just out of high school, I just started listening to different types of music. I think like a lot of a lot of musicians that got into blues, you know, like the Rolling Stones and, you know, the Doobie Brothers had a song with harmonica on it. And it just, uh, you just kind of start, start going back and, and figuring out like where these guys get their songs and, and just kind of dig deeper and deeper. And then you get to the real good stuff, the real Chicago guys. And, and that's the stuff that you kind of latch onto and, and just, uh, just start exploring and, and digging into and, so living in Minneapolis, I don't know if that's where you lived at that time, but in that vicinity, did you have yeah. a lot of access to blues musicians? Yeah, it was great. I, I grew up in, in St. Paul, Michael, so St. Paul, Minneapolis area called the Twin Cities. And we had a really, a, at that time in the late 70s, 80s, we just had a great blues scene here. I, I could literally go out and hear blues seven nights a week in the, in the clubs because we we were close to Chicago, so a lot of the Chicago musicians would come up here and play. So I had a chance to see a lot of those great players. And also I took several road trips to Chicago with friends of mine from, from college to see a lot of the great players and on their home turf. So got a, got a healthy dose of blues uh, at that time. I, I just wonder, as a person who's 18 and discovering the blues and all of a sudden figuring out that you don't live far away from Chicago, that the blues musicians are coming to your city on a regular basis. What impressions did you have about the blues at that point? I just fell in love with the sound of the, of the music and this, just the realness of the blues, you know, how authentic it was and just like it was about life and just the, just, just the sound of the musicians, uh, what they were playing just really attracted me. And uh, I never was a music fan before that, but once I started hearing the blues, I just just fell head over heels in love with it and uh, the whole culture and just just the sound of it just really appealed to me. Which artist were you attracted to the most? I mean, obviously a harmonica player, or is that the way it worked? Yeah, definitely the harmonica players. Um, you know, James Cotton, and, and I remember seeing Big Walter Horton in the late 70s in Chicago and uh, Junior Wells, just all, all the Chicago guys really um, just fell in love with the sound of, of them and got a chance to see a lot of them when they came up to the Twin Cities or when I was lucky enough to go to Chicago and see them in their home clubs. So um, a lot of those guys, and then I got interested in, in some of the West Coast players when they would come through town, guys like Rod Piazza. And so just kind of had that combination of the West Coast players and the Chicago players, but I, I just fell in love with uh, all harmonica players of uh, the Chicago and the West Coast. Um, I have a pretty good idea of what the Chicago players are like and what the West Coast players are like, but from your point of view, how would you describe the difference and in, in the, the difference between, I guess, West Coast players and the, the Chicago players? 
Yeah, in regards to harmonica, I would say, you know, certainly um, the Chicago, the, the West Coast players could play the, sh the Chicago blues very well. They had a real good grasp of that, but they had more of a swinging style to uh, to the blues on the West Coast that appealed to me as well, too. And, and guys like William Clark and Rod Piazza and the Hollywood Fats Band, uh, Al Blake, a lot of those guys had that style that, that developed from George Smith. So it was a great combination of the Chicago blues and also the West Coast, kind of like the jump style blues that really appealed to me. But the Chicago blues players had more of a rootsy sound to it, and I'd say the West Coast players kind of mixed in a little bit of that jump and swing music into their blues. And and you you would be in the middle? Did you dabble with both sides? Yeah, I, I loved both sides. Initially, I just started, I started more with... Uh, you know, focusing on the Chicago blues part of it, just because I would see all these Chicago blues players come, come through and, and try to emulate what they were doing and try to pick up on anything I could. But I, I love that sound. And of course, you know, Muddy Waters and, you know, he always had great hard players with him. I was lucky enough to, uh, to see him several times, but the West Coast players had had something that was kind of unique that I really liked too. So I, I would say I was kind of in between. I I, let, I really fell in love with both styles. Did it come easy to you, playing the harmonica? No, <laughs> it, it didn't at all. I, I think I think I think most people, most harmonica players, especially my generation, um, can attest to that. It, it's a lot of trial and error. You're putting the record back on the turntable and the needle back on, back on, back on, and you're just trying to learn it on your own and hoping you're playing in the right key. And uh, it's, it's really the only instrument that you can't see what the player is doing. So unlike today's generation where you can get really great instruction online of how to do virtually everything back then, it was a lot of trial and error. And maybe you could pick up a few tips from from harmonica players, but that was kind of guarded information. So it was kind of, I think everybody was kind of on their own trying to, trying to learn the instrument. But it, it was uh, it was difficult to, to pick up, but I just just really loved it enough that I just kept at it and, and uh, kind of figured it out the best I could. Okay, so if I'm not mistaken, we're gonna talk about your book this afternoon, but if I'm not mistaken, you, you started writing earlier, like you wrote for the, your university paper, correct. Okay, so you you're, do you do you have some love of writing? Yeah, I did when I when I was in, in college at the University of Minnesota. Um, about the same time I got interested in blues, um, I started doing some music writing, some blues writing, and it was really great because at that time I was just just like a sponge trying to soak up everything I could on records and seeing people play and talking to people. But this gave me a a little bit more of a um, an in with these musicians because I could talk to them and interview them for a piece I was writing. So I got a chance to interview B.B. King and Muddy Waters and guys from the Fabulous Thunderbirds, Luther Allison, John Hammond Jr., a lot of those guys. So it was great. You kind of get it kind of in, in, in that way and got a chance to meet a lot of these guys by doing some writing as well, too. So that's, so I, that's tell me kind of, what you remember about that interview you did with Muddy Waters. It, it was great. It was a it was a backstage interview, and got a chance to go back there and talk to him. It was it was a little bit of a rushed interview, but um, it was it was great to be able to shake his hand. And um, I, I gave him a business card, and he signed the back of it, and he gave it back to me. So I've got his autograph still. So that was great. But it was just it was just great being in his presence and and, and getting a chance to meet him. Same thing. Tell me about BB King. 
B.B. King was just one of the nicest guys I've ever talked to. Just a very, just a real gentleman and just a really, a, um, really a kind person. And I just really enjoy talking to him. Very patient. And I was probably back then maybe asking some questions that, you know, he's probably heard thousands of times before, but he was answering like he had heard him for the first time. But just a real gentleman, real, very nice person. He just had that way of making you feel like you're the only person who mattered at that moment. He did for sure, which 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 was really great, and uh, it was just a pleasure talking to him. Yeah, and I, I remember, I think it was Bill Wax who once said something like, "If the King of the Blues is that nice, there's no excuse for anybody else to be not nice." There's something to that effect. Yeah, that that's true, Marco. And what I've met about all the musicians I've met over the the course of my forty plus years, um, you know, playing, writing, and and promoting these guys is that you know by and large every single one of them just a really a a, a nice person and and uh so i, I think I, I don't know about other genres but the blues uh community is, has a lot of really great people that have have brought the music to life and um ha, have well represented the the genre you you've recorded some of your own stuff recorded a couple of your own solo albums as well as other recording projects did you ever pursue it as a full-time thing um i didn't i i was back I, I i certainly certainly had it in my mind but i i never did pursue it to that the point where i want to make it a full-time um career out of it just the fact that i wanted to raise a family and probably have more of a steadier income and more of a you know steadier job and and, and stay more more around the twin cities area but um i certainly uh Certainly, I just love playing and, and associating with a lot of those guys I had the, the chance to, to see and, and play with over the years. Um, it comes through in the book that you wrote uh, about William Clark, but it's, 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 for most part, it's not an easy life to be a blues musician. No, it, 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 it isn't in any respect. And you see, you see some of the higher level elite players like William Clark and, 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 and I think you can go down the line with, with all the great Chicago guys like Muddy Waters and Holland Wolf and, and all those uh, great, great players. And it just, it's just a hard lifestyle. And I think, I think my book about William Clark pretty much brings that to life. And uh, it just, uh, you got to love what you're doing and there's a lot of sacrifices you make along the way for the love of the music. But it's, you're right, it's not an easy lifestyle at all. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the book. You obviously became a friend with William. Um, and at one point he asked you to come and live with him for a while. At that point, were you thinking maybe that you would consider becoming a full-time musician or was it just the experience of learning how to play under his tutelage? Yeah, it was just, it was just the experience of learning to play. I, I met, I met uh, Bill Clark in 1983 when he came up to the Twin Cities and my band opened up for George Smith, George Harmonica Smith, and he happened to be with George at the time and we became good friends. And um, I asked him about coming out to LA and uh, if I could, you know, and he offered for me to live with him, which was great, but it was, it was solely for the purpose of just uh, learning some things under his wing and just uh, just being out there for, you know, for a short time and, and having the opportunity to live with him and study under him for a little while and 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 that's that's what I did. And obviously he wasn't he was open to sharing his harmonica secrets with you. 
He was. And, and I remember the first time I met him um, when my band opened up for him. And he was just, the, the, the next day we hung around, he said, do you want me to show you some things on harmonica? So he was definitely very open. And I think, I think because George Smith had taken him under his wing, that he was more than happy to share any tips he could with any other players um, to pass on what he had learned. And, uh, but he was very, very nice about that and, and um, couldn't, couldn't have been a bigger help to me than he was. You know, what comes through in your book, and I'm sure people who, who study, who know the harmonica, it's probably very obvious to them, but the role that George Harmonica Smith played in, in the world of harmonica is pretty huge, is it not? It is. It is. Yeah. I mean, George, George uh, was with Muddy Waters Band for a couple of stints and he traveled around the U.S. Um, quite a bit. And then he settled in Los Angeles in the late 1950s, mid to late 1950s. But he was definitely the driving force uh, behind the harmonica on the West Coast and especially on the chromatic harmonica. But he he influenced many, many people and really, uh, really uh, that was his style, and he passed it on to many, many great players like Kim Wilson, Rod Piazza, William Clark, um, Al Blake. The list goes on and on. So um, he, he was definitely the driving force behind the, the harmonica on the West Coast, that West Coast style. Let's talk about how the book came about, because I know initially that you didn't set out to write a book about William Clark. So tell me how the book started and how it took shape. Oh, sure, Michael. So... Um, in, in about 1995, um, uh, Bill, Bill Clark and I decided to write a harmonic construction book. And so we put our heads together and get, got about halfway done. And unfortunately, he passed away in, in 1996 before we could finish the book. And the book just kind of sat dormant for many, many years. And a, th a few years ago, about three, four years ago, I decided to pick it up and try to finish the instruction book. But I figured there's so many instruction books out there. There's a lot of things on the internet that would be more useful for, or, or more interesting to kind of create a legacy for him and to write a biography on him. On him. And so I decided to just take a 180 degree turn and go from the instruction book to a biography on his life. Was that a difficult choice to make? Uh, it wasn't difficult because I, I had I'd started working on the uh, the the instruction book again, and I just had so many second thoughts, but I thought a biography would be much more well-received and much much more needed. I, I, I know that that William Clark di didn't really have the, because he had died almost, well, about 27 years ago, that there wasn't, that was before the internet age, so there wasn't as much, you know, written about him or as much on YouTube and so forth like there are artists today, so I thought that'd really be um, more um, well received to do a biography on him. So I, I was glad I did that, but I, I, I made that switch and I'm, I'm glad I did because I thought that it, it kind of cements his legacy a little bit a little bit more. I got the impression that writing the book took a little longer than you thought it would. Yes. Can yeah, you explain, it, is it just because there's just so many people to talk to? What, what caused that, that delay? Uh, sure. So what I what I set out to do, uh, Marco, is um, write the biography, obviously. But um, my, my goal was to interview a lot of the bandmates that he had played with, a lot of musicians. So it's about a two and a half year project of doing a lot of interviews, a lot of people in the industry, um, you know, that were close to him, like Bruce Siglauer and Dick Sherman, 
you know, people like that and a lot of musicians that had played with Bill. And thankfully, a lot of those players are still around and were really, really happy I was doing the biography and happy to talk to me about his life. Um, so it was, uh, it was a lot bigger project than I thought initially. And uh, so what, what I set out to do, but I think uh, I, I feel good about the end result and I'm, I'm, I'm really happy I did it, but it was a, a massive project to do. I can imagine. Um, and you knew him quite well. I mean, you were friends and you would see him on a regular basis. Did, was there a lot that you learned about him that you didn't know? Oh, there was a tremendous amount of, of things I learned about him. I think I think when you're when you're friends with someone, you mainly talk about you know what's going on currently or you know what you hope to do in the future, that type of thing. I, I didn't I didn't know about the the extent of his background and uh, his family life, and so basically I was constructing the book from when he was born to when he died. So I obviously knew him. Um, you know, I met him in 1983, so I knew him from 83 through 96 when he passed away, but I didn't know about those early years. He was born in 1951. So it was just recreating someone's whole life. And that was a, uh, but I, I did learn a lot about him, just about how he was raised and some of the ups and downs of his life and some of the things, the hardships that he went through and the hard work he put into to where he ended up and what he accomplished in life. So I learned a tremendous amount about him. There's a sense that musically he knew exactly what he wanted, like he could hear everything that he wanted to hear, and he would direct the band members to do so. Where do you think that came from? I think he was so focused, Marco, that I know that in 19, uh, 1967, when he was um, 16 years old, that's when he first picked up a harmonica, and that's when he decided he wanted to be a bluesman and he ended up quitting high school. But I think he was so focused on that task that he spent, you know, eight, eight, ten hours a day sometimes practicing. I remember even living with him when, I, when he was working full-time as a musician, he would go into the bathroom and spend three, four hours in the bathroom playing harmonica. And he was just so focused and so driven that he could pick up all the nuances of whether he's in the studio or on the bandstand, what, what the band members were doing and what they did last night. and. And uh, he just he just had a great ear for it, and just was so focused on on his music that he could pick up all the the nuances and what was going on. What I also found interesting was the fact that he could pick up on all those things, and if he played a lick that he liked that first night, you you weren't really expected to repeat that. Right. That he 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 wanted it to be different every single time, which is a pretty amazing thing. Yeah, that, that, that just floored me when I talked to the band members and they told me that because as, as a harmonica player and band leader myself, I, I, I wouldn't know if, if one of my band members was playing the, the, <laughs> same, the same lick on one song from one night to the next, but he knew that. And, and uh, one thing that really stood out with William Clark is his originality. And he wanted his shows to be different from night to night. And he wanted the band members, what they were playing from night to night to be original and different. And one of the things that stuck out in that, I know we were uh, talking a little bit about Tad Robinson, and one of the things that he, he told me about the book that he really appreciated was that, you know, William Clark played, he paid everybody in the band the same amount of money. And he said, that's because I want you guys to work as hard as I'm going to work. So you can't, you can't tell me you're not working as hard as I am because you're not getting paid as much. And so he expected that same amount of dedication and hard work that he put into his music that they put that same amount into their music. And um, 
So that's what he expected night after night from his his uh, musicians. And he had a lot of great musicians who are still playing today. He he did for sure, and I, I know he he would take on a lot a lot of younger players, uh, Henry Carvajal and Rick Holmstrom, Zach Zunas, guys like that, and. It was almost like a blues boot camp. You would take these guys on, you know, in their early 20s and, and uh, really break them in. And, and like they said, that they, they, they learned a tremendous amount playing with him. And it was not always easy, but it was just it was just a great learning experience that they're thankful that they went through. But he had a lot of great musicians that did come through that, that band. Um, guys like John Marks, Alex Schultz, guys like that, which were a little bit older. But certainly the younger musicians, he really... Uh, he really schooled them on the blues. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly an impressive list. It, it, and like you said, it wasn't easy. You certainly get the impression that being in that band, well, I presume any band isn't easy, but, you know, being in that band that at one point worked so hard and like he crisscrossed the U.S. on one tour, he went back, back and forth twice or something in a matter right. of, I don't know, two, three months. Like, it's crazy to me. But... Um, I, you know, you also gave me the sense of what it's like to be in a blues band, traveling across the country, in a van. <laughs> Not exactly, yeah. right? It, it, it makes my decision look better that I never <laughs> tried to do it full time because just reading that myself too, it's like I have, I have some friends that are full time blues musicians, but I never, never, I never understood the hardships they faced. Um, in those days, you know, going going across the country and beat up vans where the gauges aren't working, they're breaking down, um, they're sleeping two to a room and being cooped up in a van for 12-hour rides. And it just, like you said, the lifestyle is very, very difficult. And the, a lot of times the hard work isn't playing the music. That's the fun part. The hard work is the rest of the, the day getting to the gig or, you know, setting up that type of thing. You alluded this to this when you first met... Um, William Clark, he was touring with George Smith. And it comes up again when he's touring with Charlie Musselwhite. Is it, I, I know that like somebody like Mark Hummel has this harmonica blowout and he tours with a bunch of harmonica players, but was it more common to have two different harmonica players touring with one another back then? It, yeah, that, that was very unusual. Um, I, I know when Bill went out with George Smith, that was that was a tour that they just, did that that one time, um, but I, I know when he met Charlie Muswat, I believe they were on maybe a, on a package deal. But usually, uh, usually Bill's band would would be out on the road on their own. Okay. With 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 just him as a sole harmonica player. Um, but for whatever reason, that stood out to me the the fact that you know the number of times that he's playing with other great harmonica players. Right. Right. Yeah. I wonder the process of writing a book, which can't be easy. What did you learn about yourself through this process of writing that book? I learned about certainly uh, the hard work involved in it and just, just seeing it through. There's, there's many times where I, I just couldn't get motivated and, and I just had a hard time, hard time, you know, carrying on. But I, I just, uh, I, I, I found some motivation through William Clark actually just because he was such a hard worker and he's such a good friend of mine that I wanted to make this happen and uh, it just just seen through a big the big picture and, and the project it's just the hard work involved just it was tough but I it, it made me realize that I could do something like that so I never I never thought I could write a book but I, I did 
Well, you did a great job. Um, was there a point where you could see the the end? Like that way you thought, okay, now I've got it. Now it's it's done. It's it's that that was a difficult part, uh, Mako. It's I I went through several edits, and it's like uh, for guys that have done CDs or recordings before, it's you're always going back in and wondering what you could have done differently, or maybe picking apart things, but. It was the same thing with with the book. It, I would go back in and and think I was done. Then I'd go back in and do some more edits, and then go back in and do some more edits. And finally, came to the point where I just felt like that was as good as it's going to get. You always have a little bit of self doubt, like could I've done something better? But you have to get to the point where you um, you just have to you have to wrap it up and 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 realize that's the best I can do, and and feel satisfied with what you did. Did you have? Do you set goals for this? Do you have an idea of what you want this book to achieve, and has it achieved that? I th yeah, I, I feel it has, Marco. I've got I've gotten some really nice comments from people that have read it, um, that have been inspired by the book, and I think my goal in, in writing this was just to create that legacy for for Bill. And I know Jeanette said he always wanted to be in a book, and she said he would have been so happy to have a, a whole book written about him, and. Um, there were some tough times in the book where some things, um, some things that he went through that that I had doubts should I put that in the book or not. And, and Jeanette wanted me, Jeanette Bill's wife wanted me to be honest with the book, and she said Bill would have wanted that too. So I, it's just an honest recounting of his life, and I think I've accomplished what I set out to do, and that's to, to create the legacy for Bill. So that he'll always be there and he'll always be recognized as, in my opinion, the greatest harmonic player of his generation and one of the best of all time. But certainly, um, I think he deserved that biography and that was my goal and I'm, I'm, I'm glad I was able to complete it. Yeah, well, nice job. I mean, it's amazing when you think what he died when he was, I believe, 45? Yes, correct. So, and, and not that he's the first person to die at a younger age, but I mean, all the, all the ups and downs that he went through. And it's it's tragic because, you know, there's certain things that he did that he corrected and things were looking really good before he passed away. And it's a shame that it worked. I mean, you know, that's life, I guess. But it's heartbreaking when you think about the issues that he had to deal with and how he overcame them. And then he had his health issues. Yeah, it really is, Marco. And um, thankfully, the last um, the last several months of his life, he was able to be sober, free, and, and make amends to some people that he felt he had he had hurt. And um, I, I had I had seen um, Bill two months before he died. Um, he came up to the Twin Cities and played, and that's the best I'd ever seen him play. And I had seen him play many, many times over the years and he was just feeling great and, and playing as well as better than he's ever played before and it's just a shame that at that point um, he lost his life but um, I'm just glad that he he was able to live those last few months of his life sober free and he felt like um, like a new man and, and unfortunately the physical part of it he didn't quite get there but certainly the men his mental state was at an all-time high. Um, you didn't put yourself in the book very much. Was that a, obviously, obviously a conscious decision? But it, you do mention it at the very end. Um, what was the thought process in that? Yeah, well, and thanks for bringing that up. I had someone else, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Kim Field, that's an author. He, he mentioned that too, and he thought that was noteworthy. Um, 
I want I wanted to focus more on the the book really changed directions when I started writing it when I started learning all the complexities of his life and what he went through. And I wanted to focus more on the story of him, the trials and tribulations, and him as a musician. And I, I thought that was best told through the people that had toured with him, that had played with him. Um, and so I was kind of, kind of like a little bit of an outsider looking in and writing that story, but knowing him well. So I, 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 I did that with a purpose. Um, I just wanted to focus more on, on the people that had played and interacted with Bill on, on, you know, musically. Okay, so now that you've done this and have one under your belt, would you consider writing another one? Or have you thought about any other writing projects? Uh, I haven't. I, I guess never say never. Uh, writing, writing that story about Bill is a labor of love. You know, just because, uh, you know, I just, I love that man and, and um, spouse Jeanette. I mean, they're just two of the greatest people I've ever met. So to do another one, um, I don't know. I, I, I think one, one thing that kind of entices me a little bit of, of maybe doing something on the West Coast blues scene because I know a lot of people have said this is great that I didn't know anything about the West Coast blues scene and this book kind of opened up, opened up their minds to, hey, that was, that was a fantastic scene out on the West Coast. So, uh, But to, to answer your question, I, I haven't... I, that's that's not in my uh, my psyche right now to do that. But if if I ever did, that that's kind of intriguing. The, the West Coast blues scene, maybe to do something on that. Tell me about your playing these days. Are you doing a lot of gigs? Um, I I pro probably play maybe 30, 40 gigs a year, and um, just just a part time musician. But I like keeping my my hands in it. I I still love playing a lot around the Twin Cities and. Um, especially in, in the nice weather, there's a lot of great, great stages um, that are outside that you can play. We can play in the nice weather, but I've, I've really gained a new appreciation for playing after writing this book on William Clark, and and um, I think in, in the way that how original he was, and he was always move, moving the music forward. So I really try to keep that in mind in, in my kind of attitude about playing. And, and kind of the direction I'm trying to go with my playing. But I still do love to play, and um, I think about Bill all the time and what influence he was on me, and I'm hoping the book and, and maybe my playing will influence some other people to to keep playing that great, uh, great style of blues we all love. Um, the other thing that you do is promote the blues. Well, how did that begin? Yeah, that, that, actually, that actually started way back in the late 70s when I, um, first time I went to Chicago and and uh, I, I went to a, a blues bar called Blues and uh, saw Homesick James, Big Walter, uh, Playboy Bob Vince and Floyd, Floyd Jones playing together and just uh, really blew me away that these great musicians were down there playing in Chicago but they never had been to the Twin Cities. So I um, I met a, a, a woman down there um, named Jill Arrigo, and, and she introduced me to a lot of these players, one of them being Big Smokey Smothers, who was a lifelong friend of mine. You recorded I, I with him, did you not? Yeah, I recorded the, his last CD we, we recorded together. And uh, so I started promoting way back then, Marco, back in the late 70s, early 80s. I'd bring a Big Walter Horton and Eddie Taylor and Sonny Lance Slim and Big Smokey and Jimmy Dawkins, a lot of those people, just because they weren't making it to the Twin Cities, I wanted to see them up there and, and have other people uh, see them as well, too. And I've, I've continued promoting throughout the years, and um, 
do do maybe one or two events each year. How has promoting the blues and putting on shows changed over the years? Well, the the, the originators aren't aren't around as as we know anymore. So it's uh, a a lot of the, the blues has changed to some you know to some degree just because we don't have those those guys around anymore. But I I try to bring in the the guys that I really think that are capturing the feel of the blues that I like. Um, and, and there's uh, unfortunately not as many as there was, once was. So yeah, I think it's definitely changed because like I said, the originators aren't around any longer, but there's a lot of really great, great players out there that have, that have uh, played with these guys that are still playing actively. So I, I try to bring those guys up to the Twin Cities when I can and, and have them showcase their skills. Is it, I mean, I don't know about the Twin Cities, but is there a solid blues audience in the in the two cities? There is, yeah. We have a good blues society up here, and I think, I think like 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 you probably are aware of, and you've been hearing. I've been hearing from so many musician friends that the blues audience is getting older, and um, so hopefully we can attract some younger younger people into. Uh, into the the music that we all love and um certainly i see that on a lot of the summer concerts we do i see those people out there and they might not know who muddy waters or holland wolf or george smith are but they love the music once they hear it so i think um the, the audience that we know is is dwindling a little bit it's getting older but hopefully we'll have a influx of some newer newer people coming in that appreciate the the classic and the west coast blues i always find it interesting um, just because, it, you know, I do some work in the classical music world. And when you go to a classical music festival, you're, the first thing that strikes you is just how old. I mean, you think blues audiences are old, but, oh. you know, the classical music audiences yeah. tend to be much older. Um, the players seem to be much younger. Um, and and in, in the blues, there's a lot of young blues musicians. Well, I don't know why the younger blues musicians who are so good don't necessarily bring in a younger blues audience. You know what I mean? Like it's right. Like I don't know what yeah. the answer is to get the the younger generation to listen to more blues. Yeah, I know it's it, it, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a tough question because I know when I was going out to the the bars in my college days, it'd all be people my age. Yeah, and, and uh, so yeah, it's a little bit different uh, demographic now for sure. But I, I that's that's a good question. I I. I I can't answer that, but I know what you're saying. <laughs> so, do you have any other shows coming up that you're planning to do? Um, we we still do an annual New Year's Eve New, New Year's Eve show, and um, we had a great one this year. I think we you and I were talking about that a little bit with uh, Billy Flynn and Anson Funderburg and Tad Robinson. So, that was that was a, a a great show. So, hopefully, we'll get something going for this New Year's Eve. But otherwise, I'll just be be playing around town and. Um, with with my I usually play in like a trio or sometimes a band setting so nice well Paul it's a real pleasure meeting you and thank you so much for sending me this book it was a great read um I had heard of William Clark I have a couple of his CDs I know he's well respected but um the, your book has given me a real insight into who he was um both as not a tragic figure but it makes you appreciate what he went through as a musician and also just how brilliant he was as a musician. Yeah, thank, thanks, Marco. And um, like I said, when I when I started out writing the book, I didn't envision what what his life was like until I 
until I dug back. But it was quite an extraordinary life and with a lot of a lot of tragedy and ups and downs, but he, but ultimately he accomplished what he set out to do. And he, at age 16, he said, I wanted my goal in life is to become a bluesman. And he sure did. And he took that to the top level. And it's, it's, uh, it's a tragedy that he died at such a young age, but he sure left a legacy and a lot of great music and memories for the, for folks to appreciate. So one other thing that, that did really strike me was when he recorded for Alligator that he basically did the album and then gave it to Bruce a Glower. Right. And Bruce didn't seem to have a lot of input into the those albums, which I believe is unusual. It it is, Marco. I, I think Bruce told me at the time when I interviewed Bruce that uh, that Bill was the only artist that he was allowed to do that. And Bill was very, very picky about his music and he was very good in the studio. Like um, as you know from the book, he would take parts of licks and put them in or replace a a bass drum if he had to, but he was very hands-on like he was on stage. So um, he did it his way and it sure turned out great. But Bruce gave him that freedom that allowed Bill to be the use his creative juices to put out those great recordings. Yeah, and so obviously speaks a lot for Bruce who, can, who allowed him to do that. It does. Bruce was a big, uh, had a big impact on, on Bill's career and um, just uh, couldn't say enough nice things about Bruce and what he's done for the blues, but he sure did have a great, uh, great impact on uh, on Bill's career. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this. Um, thanks for taking the time to talk about your book, and it's a real pleasure meeting you. Yeah, thank you so much, Michael. It's great meeting you too. You take care. All right, you too. Okay, so long, Michael.